0: Introduction, Part 15. Of the Elder Edda, Author Unknown. Translated by Olive Bray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Introduction, Part 15. The Soothsaying of the Vala. In Völuspá, the god's history is reviewed once more from beginning to end, this time by one who sees it in its truest light, the artist just touched as it seems by later influence and new ideals this poem cannot be taken as primitive or as the work of one who held the mythical fancies as religious beliefs the old gods have had their day their story is complete but once more it is told before it is forgotten in an age when their nature and strivings are yet understood some poet who has seen truth in the beauty of these old world tales has endeavoured to give them a unity which is still retained in spite of all after meddling with his work it is seen in the thread which runs like a guiding principle throughout the bond of weird which weaves itself inch by inch out of the acts of gods and men as we have shown this poem is the conscious recognition of a principle which must exist in any mythology founded on a religion of nature for this reason it needs to be read both first and last first because it sums up and interprets the other poems and last because without a previous knowledge of its myths the vala's words can scarcely be understood even with such knowledge as we have already gathered some passages cannot be explained owing to lost connections and forgotten incidents others because their difficulty arises from the nature of mythology itself with its rational and irrational ideas its blendings of poetry and superstition and the thoughts of one age with those of another but as the poet himself has seen little beauty and no truth can be revealed in the detailed rehearsal of myths by which men have sought to represent the mysteries of life he has given rather the spirit in which they tried to grasp them the old norsemen turned a serious face towards life and refused to regard it either as a playground or a home of rest it was essentially a field of endeavour and of strife between man and nature god and jutun powers of good and evil all this is echoed in the struggle of the gods with weird the power and deep war notes of the poem the solemnity of tone which is relieved at times by a quiet rejoicing in the mere movement and activities of life peculiar too was the attitude of the norseman towards the supernatural mysteries to him were not further mystified by speculation or emotion but as such they were left and took their place among the factors of his daily life where all else was tangible and definite to the eye we can well imagine such an attitude of mind arising among men who had been brought to dwell in a land where nature is full of mystery and who were forced to live a practical and strenuous life in conflict with powers only half understood loneliness and dim perils of ice and snow became a part of their everyday existence hence the atmosphere and setting of the poem its background dim and misty grey and subdued in tone lit only by aurora gleams of imagination and its foreground with the well-defined and vivid pictures characteristic too is the figure of the vala so-called probably though the point is much disputed from the staff which she carried she was a wandering prophetess who clad in her fur cap and her dark robes went from house to house foretelling and divining hidden things the power of second sight which she claimed was common not only to such as she but to many a good housewife in icelandic sagas but while those so gifted knew only of trivial matters interpreted dreams and omens advised and warned this vala addressing all kindreds of the earth reveals the fate and history of the world like the witch in Baldur's dreams she has been called up from the dead and like the mighty weaver she is one of those primeval beings who remember all things and she recalls in visionary scenes one by one the great events of time snorri has vainly attempted to bring sequence and order into his corresponding description and has invented details which spoil the grandeur of that given by the vala for want of better authority however we are often obliged to rely upon him for explanations she tells first of the creation in the beginning was chaos when as yet there was no heaven or earth only in the north a region of snow and ice and in the south one of fire and heat with a yawning gap between from which life arose in the form of ymir the stirring rustling sounding yutun followed by others of his kind born out of the elements and as yet hardly to be distinguished from them then the gods were born who forthwith made war upon these giant powers, and, half subduing them, they ordered the universe with its worlds of gods and elves, of dwarfs and giants, of men, the living in Midgarth, the dead in hell, all held in the sheltering embrace of a great world tree. But from whence sprang this tree, or when and how it grew, not even the giants could tell. Sun, moon, and stars were set in heaven, and when sun turned her face towards earth, and shone upon its threshold stones it brought forth fruit and its bare surface was overspread with green but as yet the paths of the heavenly bodies had not been decreed what did sun do in her perplexity how did she fling her right hand over the rim of heaven how did she appear to the spectator to glide on towards the right and linger in the northern heavens without knowing the hall of her setting did she face round from the south and marching back eastward fling her own right hand over the horizon and set in the east or have we in stanza five a description of the midnight sun dipping for a moment below the horizon and then rising to put to shame moon who had not yet learned his secret influence over the destiny of man and the stars who knew not their courses for the first time the gods gathered in council in their holy place by the well of weird to order this matter again they met to rescue the humble dwarf folk who had been left half created as the maggots which crawled out of ymir's flesh they were given human form and a share in creative power but all their work the forging of secret treasures they must do beneath the ground then followed the greatest act of creation concerning which the gods held no counsel for it came to pass in the course of destiny when sun obeying the law of her own being at first shone upon the world vegetative life was quickened in the earthy matter now the gods once faring on their homeward way bestowed each after his own nature gifts upon two barren trees and human life was awakened with individuality and a soul odin as the wind god gave them breath which has ever been held as the emblem of the spirit or even as spirit itself hinir of whom little is known except that he was wise see below gave an understanding mind loki here called lodur the fire-god gave warm blood and the bright hue of life meanwhile what snorri calls the golden age was passing when the gods were building the fair homes mentioned by grimnir rejoicing in their work in their play and doubtless too in their love it must have been then that bragi wooed idun with fluent tongue that baldr wedded nana that thor's heart was given to sif the golden-haired the most guileless among all the goddesses but soon this peaceful age was broken the first shadow of doom fell as three mighty maidens passed from jutunheim and sat them down beneath the tree yggdrasil these fair norns who wrote the past and present on their tables and laid down the future lots of men are later forms of weird personified as a grim goddess of fate and known to all germanic races then swiftly followed the first war among kindred races of the gods the sir and the wains from the last more cultured tribe there came a witch called golden draught among the warlike Isir. two things she taught this simple folk the lust for gold and the use of magic the last was deemed an unpardonable sin among germanic nations and was punished by burning in like manner the Esir sought to destroy golden draught by burning her in odin's hall but in vain for as many times as they burned her she was born anew war broke out and the wains demanded wergild and a council of peace was held but the warfather arose and hurling his spear gave the signal for strife to rage anew it ended in the storming and destruction of asgarth by the wains here a gap in the poem or a timely clouding of the vala's vision hides the shame and defeat of the gods in inglinga saga for it is told as legendary history that after a while both sides became weary of a war in which victory fell now to the one and now to the other and in which the countries of both were spoiled so they held a peace meeting and made a truce and exchanged chieftains the wains sent their noblest Neward, with his children frey and freya and the isir sent hinir who was deemed well fitted to be a ruler and with him they sent also one of great understanding mimir in exchange for kvasir the wisest among the wains hinir was made a chief in Wainholm. when the people found that he could give no counsel without mimir but said on all occasions let others decide they thought themselves cheated by the isir and cut off mimir's head and sent it to odin he smeared it with herbs and sang rune-songs and gave it power of speech through which he learned many secret things according to snorri kvasir was a wondrous being fashioned by all the gods from whose blood the song-mead was brewed up page twenty-eight. in both accounts the details are evidently of late invention this war between strength and valour on the one side art and skill on the other is like a shadowy recollection of a time in history when the barbaric children of the north were dazzled by Roman gold and Roman civilization. But such a strife with the first weakening of the war powers was inevitable in the story of the gods. Immediately following this incident, it would seem from the allusion of the Vala stands at twenty-five, took place an event which Snorri recounts: a fierce struggle with the jotuns and a crafty attempt on their part to win Freya, the summer goddess who had just been brought to asgarth the gods were in need of a builder to raise anew the walls of their dismantled city which by the last war had been left open to the inroads of frost and mountain giants a craftsman appeared and offered to do the work in three half-years but asked as his payment Freya and with her the sun and moon at the evil council of loki and seemingly in the absence of thor they agreed to his demands if he could finish the work in a single winter before the first day of summer otherwise his reward would be forfeited he worked night and day with the help of his giant horse svadyafari and the walls were well nigh complete when it still wanted three days before the summer then the gods took counsel and questioned one another who had thus planned to send freya as bride into Jotunheim, who had filled all the sky and heaven with darkness by taking thence the sun and moon it is this scene which the poem describes but it tells nothing of what is learned from snorri that the gods knew one and all that he must have counselled this whoever counsels ill loki the son of leaf then they laid hands upon him and made him swear to deliver them out of their plight and he did this by changing himself into a mare and enticing svaldifari away into the woods and when the craftsman saw that he could not finish the work he flew into a utun rage and the gods knew now for certain that it was one of the mountain giants who had come among them. And oaths were disregarded, and Thor was called, who came even as swiftly. Then was Mjolnir raised aloft, and the craftsman received his wage. But he returned not into Jutunheim with the sun and moon, for at the first blow his skull was broken into pieces, and he was sent down to mist-hell beneath. Once more a scene of shame is veiled, for the gods had broken faith with the Jotuns in trying to undo their own folly when the vala resumes a new part of the poem has begun and her words become more mysterious she is revealing now no longer old tidings heard or things remembered but secret knowledge which she has won at night-time when she sat out enchanting and holding commune with the spirits of nature on some such occasion it seems that odin has come to consult with her but when this occurred or whether she is rehearsing a past incident is not made clear she proves first her power to foretell the future by showing that her knowledge penetrates to the holiest secrets of the gods she knows of their pledges heimdall's hearing odin's eye and balder's life heimdall can hear grass growing in the earth and wool on the back of sheep is it his ear which he has hidden in the secret well beneath yggdrasil to obtain this wonderful power which he needs in his watch against the mountain giants and why has odin pledged his eye to mimir this last question can be answered only by tracing back the history of mimir in german tradition he is a wise teacher and wonderful smith who instructed siegfried and weland according to Snorri, he is hinir's companion whom the wains beheaded and who became the friend and counsellor of odin in the poetic edda he is also closely associated with a god whose wisdom as we have seen is not the natural attribute of his divinity but is drawn from all sources giants valas from hell ravens in the air instruct him but his friend of friends is mimir the deep thinker with whom he takes counsel at the doom mimir is a giant in the older edda and guardian of a sacred well of wisdom or rather at an earlier date that well itself from whose source or head flowed the moisture used in the writing of the runes page thirty one and in whose waters odin has pledged his eye to gain insight into hidden things a further interpretation which mullenhoff suggests belongs to a still older stratum of thought a nature myth of the sun drawing precious moisture from the sea and in return casting its own reflection its second eye into the deep sun and sea thus mutually dependent together give nourishment to the world as odin and mimir together bestow their wisdom in stanza thirty two is mentioned the third and yet more mysterious pledge baldur's life and fate which are bound up with the mistletoe page sixty four but the description of the vala is now growing more and more visualized and she herself can scarce interpret the floating pictures which represent now some future now some present scene she is looking into all the different worlds earth where the valkyries are speeding to the battlefields of men asgarth where beside valhalla the fateful mistletoe is already high upgrown the cave where she foresees the torment of loki hell where evil men are suffering the penalty of their misdeeds Uttenheim, with its feasting hall of giants dark dwarf land where no sun nor moon can penetrate lit only by the glowing forge-fires of these active beings and again eastward into juttenheim where skul was fostered the dark wolf son of fenrir who follows the fleeing sun goddess across the heavens until he clutches her in the west and stains all the sky at sunset with crimson like the blood of men page sixteen all these grim sights have in them something fearful and ill-omened the shadow of fate is growing darker the weird motif is heard more and more clearly now the true spydom of the vala begins she has turned to the future and foretells the doom of the gods but she grows less visionary the scene is a twilight glimpse of dawn she can only see dimly and she is listening to the crowing of the cocks in giantland in asgarth and in hell and following the long-expected signals of alarm she hears a rumbling through all Jotunheim as the giant enemies of the gods bestir themselves for battle the clashing of weapons in valhalla as the war-sons of odin awake and pour forth through the 500 doorways while the gods are gathering at the doomstead and holding speech together in hell the rending of chains fenrir has broken loose loki is free she hears the gleeful song of the giant's warder answered by heimdall with the roaring blast of galahorn which sounds through all the worlds in the earth too among men she hears wars and rumours of wars crashing of shields and swords from below comes the groaning of the imprisoned dwarfs and throughout at intervals waxing louder and wilder the deep baying of the hellhound Garm. amid this tumult she catches another sound more fearful still the shivering and rustling of the great ash the tree of fate as it quivers but does not fall and yet one other sound a voice in the storm the murmur of words odin is holding speech with mimir now light falls once more the vala can see the foes are gathering from all quarters on the great battlefield which measures a hundred miles each way from the east come frost and mountain giants from the south come fire giants from the north the hell hosts and loki from the west must come the gods led by odin with all his chosen warriors in single combats the last battle is depicted. Weird is triumphant. A second time must the heaven goddess weep when the war father is devoured by Fenrir, though vengeance quickly follows and the wolf falls before Vidar. Frey, who has parted with the sword which waged itself, is destroyed by the fire giant Surt. Thor meets once more with the world serpent and still glorious in defeat, he slays and is slain. Thus the war gods perish and fire consumes the world throughout this passage the tone of the poem has changed solemn and meditative at first or rippling blithely on through each fresh disclosure of life it has grown abrupt and stormy with the strivings of weird to fulfil itself now again it changes to a tone of peaceful exaltation which heralds the restitution of all things there is nothing visionary now or mystic in the scene it is a calm fresh morning after the night of storm all nature is at rest life is resumed seldom do we find in old poetry so realistic a description the green earth is still bathed with moisture the rushing of waterfalls is heard the living eagles in contrast to the pale-beaked monster of stanza fifty seek their wanted food in mountain pools the gods are come again but not all for the rule of the war-gods is at an end and their home of battle will henceforth be the dwelling-place of peace it is a continuation of a former existence without labour and without strife old sports are renewed old achievements are not forgotten old mysteries are disclosed powers of evil depart and there comes a new god but here fresh mysteries appear and must wait for solution by a later poet who seeks, like the present one, to explain existent myths in the light of a higher creed? End of introduction. Part fifteen: The Soothsaying of the Vala. End of introduction by Olive Bray. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.